0: Episode 102, David and Bathsheba and the Spirit of Lust Second Samuel 11 In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. In the last episode, we talked about how David sent out Joab to fight the Ammonites, and the army of Israel was surrounded and nearly destroyed. And in this episode, we try to answer that question, where was David? Well, David chose to not go to war that season, like he had more pressing matters than the security of his kingdom. In fact, in the spring when the kings go to war, David decided to stay home with the comforts and security and luxury and sin of his capital. I'd like to suggest he had more sinister plans from the beginning, and his heart had turned away from God for some time. There's a quote that's widely attributed to Billy Graham, but I haven't been able to confirm it's truly by him, but regardless who said it, it's quite profound. Here it is. If a man of God falls, it is usually one of the three G's, gold, girls, or glory. In this episode, King David, one of the Bible greats of all time, gets completely cashiered. While external threats could not dethrone him on the battlefield, it happened internally when David dethroned God from his heart. In this episode, we discuss King David's fall from grace and his sin with Bathsheba and the three G's that we must all watch out for as kings in this world. In addition, we'll be covering adult topics like lust, pornography, and even murder. Picture Jerusalem with me. David has pitched his tent and the Ark of the Covenant, and the worshippers are there day and night. Nearby was his palace with his seven wives and ten or so concubines. When he moves the Ark into Jerusalem and he defeats the enemies of Israel, he's awed by God and worships hours and hours a day. He spends considerable time in the tent of David. He spends his time wisely and ministers his kingdom. But over time he worships less. We see far fewer psalms written, and the pleasures and luxury of life pull him away. This pulling away occurs over periods of years, until he becomes numb to the change occurring around him. Surely others notice, but they are changing too. The old guard and even the priest could probably notice, but the comforts of life were such a blessing. If the king could have more than one wife, why can't they? The morality began to dip in the capital, and that lie that David could have anything he wanted gripped at him. And lust, the insatiable, never-satisfied monster of the flesh, began to grip him daily. With each new wife and concubine, two become one in flesh, and soul ties drew David away from his God. His eyes would have become haughty, and he looked upon women of his kingdom in unhealthy, revolting ways to us. I say all this with confidence because David must have known Bathsheba since she was a child. David had around 30 mighty men in his army. These are the old guards, one capable of destroying an entire army themselves. An entire load of Samson's in uniform was the mighty men. One of David's mighty men was a man from Judah, a super stud named Eliam. Eliam was a son of Ahithophel, who was one of David's advisors. Eliam probably joined David at Adullam and either had a baby or a very young daughter named Bathsheba at this time. This Bathsheba was later wed to a foreigner in David's army and a mighty man himself named Uriah the Hittite. So this should dismiss any thoughts that a remarkable beauty just showed up on the scene and swept David off his feet. This is a misnomer. David has known Bathsheba since she was a little girl. David was at least 40 years old now, and some scholars have put him at 60. Bathsheba was probably 20 years old. Putting this in perspective, it makes this sin even more revolting. When David sends Joab out with the army, he must have had sin in mind, for there was something he wanted to do without the men of the army around. Disgusting, huh? So... That's where we're going in this episode. All right, here we go. It's quite pathetic what happens. Can't say I didn't warn you over the last couple of weeks. 2nd Samuel 11. In the spring at the time when the kings go to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So this is a bit odd that he doesn't know who she is. Maybe he hasn't seen her in a while, but he clearly knows who Bathsheba was. She was the daughter and wife of two of his mighty men. But what this reminds me of a man who had temporarily lost his marbles. Remember when Saul saw David before he kills Goliath, and he didn't know who he was, despite David being one of his armor-bearers and the one who played the liar before him? I see this as an indication of a man who's gotten drunk, physically, mentally, and especially spiritually. It's such a warning to men of God. You have fought hard to earn your place and achieve the purposes of God. But when you are on top of your mountain, on top of your palace, you must be stronger than you were before and not give up fighting against temptations. Do not become lazy and content once you have achieved your goals. I've always wondered about this scene. What was he doing on the roof of his palace and why was she exposed to him? The Midrash has an interesting story connected with this scene. I really discount it, but I tell it here because it's interesting. The Midrash portrays the influence of Satan bringing about a sinful relation of David and Bathsheba as follows. Bathsheba was bathing, perhaps behind a screen of rick wood. Satan is depicted as coming in the disguise of a bird. David, shooting at the bird, strikes the screen, splitting it. Thus Bathsheba is revealed in all her beauty to him. Well, Whatever happened, I truly wish we could just end the account here. When David saw a pretty woman blessed her in the name of the lord with abundance and blessing but we cannot it goes downhill really fast here we go second samuel 11 4 then david sent messengers to get her she came to him and he slept with her now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness then she went back home the woman conceived and sent word to david saying i am pregnant all right david you blew it but not only did you blow it, she's pregnant. What were you thinking? Alright, so the old David wouldn't have made this mistake. But if he did, he would have confessed it. And would have wrote a song about it. But instead, he tries to hide it. It's really crazy. Before we continue, it's good to understand the generational advantages that David has in his bloodline. And compare it to the unredeemed characteristics of his bloodline. To look to the generational blessings... David has walked into them in the ark and the promises, the fulfillment of the land promised to Abraham, and the blessings of worship and his walk with God. But to find his generational weaknesses, we look to the patriarch of Judah himself, the son of Jacob. Judah was considered a scoundrel in his time. He slept with prostitutes, married idol-worshiping women, and there was a disgusting moment in Genesis where he was deceived into sleeping with his estranged daughter in Genesis 38. So in his heart was wayward activity and lust, clearly entangling him, and we will see the same throughout the generations of men from Judah. Call it a generational curse or a generational weakness, whatever the terminology, there was sinful predispositions to those in the tribe of Judah, and David was walking right into them. On the positive side, it was Judah who interceded on behalf of Benjamin in Genesis 43, and it was Judah who was willing to give his own life for Benjamin. This led to the blessing of Genesis 49.8, that the scepter would not depart from Judah. But at the moment, David was experiencing the fruit of years of walking away from God and the constant entertainment of the flesh and death that comes from it. Who is that woman? He asked his servants. You knew who she was, you idiot. I'll call him an idiot here because he wasn't the David we came to love over the last weeks, but the incarnate of a sinful lustfulness, which is an idiot. Now you can probably see why I have tried to make mention of David's heart as we've been progressing, so anyone unfamiliar with the story is not totally surprised. Now David tries to cover his tracks. Second Samuel 11.6 So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. So you can see what David's trying to do. He wants Uriah to go home and sleep with his wife so that he can cover his tracks. Who cares if the child ends up looking like David? Must be some strange issue of genetics. Sure, but Uriah was not going to allow this to happen. If you can remember a ways back, when David eats the showbread at Nob, he said to the high priest, My men always abstain from sexual relations when in the field. Uriah was pulled from the field of battle. Uriah must have been furious that he was pulled from the battlefield, for he was taught honor, though it wasn't displayed at all at the moment by his great teacher and master, David. But this is what Uriah does. Second Samuel 11.9 But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all of his master's servants and did not go to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, Haven't you just come home from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander, Joab, and my lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Next, David tries to get him drunk. 2 Samuel eleven thirteen. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat, Among his master's servants, he did not go home. Since this did not work, David resorts to the lowest low to cover his sin. What a horrible master sin is. It will always find you out. David signs an order to have Uriah killed. To understand the low state that David was truly in is despicable, and worse, he sends it with Uriah himself. Uriah carries his own death sentence to Joab. 2 Samuel 11.14 In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front with the fighting as fiercest, then withdraw from him so he may be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent a messenger to David to tell him what happens. Second Samuel 11.22 Then the messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. This is important because it appears many others died in this purposely botched attack at Rabbah. Possibly hundreds died at the city walls, maybe even most of Uriah's company of a thousand or so soldiers, assuming each mighty man could at times command a thousand soldiers. But David is blinded by sin. Second Samuel 11.25 David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. And the account continues. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. To conclude this episode of Message to Kings, we've got to stop the account here just as David commits adultery and murder and betrayal and just park here because it's such a profound moment when a man of God falls and David has fallen. The remainder of his life, he will regret this moment and desire the days of innocence for they are long gone and sin, though it is forgivable, will have long-ranging physical consequences. So let's go back to the three G's. Girls, gold, and glory. David was corrupted and drawn away from his God by the lust in his life, which led to the sin with Bathsheba. He desired something which was beyond his ownership, but greedily took Bathsheba, and his pride and arrogance led him to dismiss his normal responsibilities when he esteemed himself in the place of God, no longer worshipping God, but bowing only to his personal desires. But to think that David just fell into this lustful sin is erroneous. He had this thing on him all along. Not to this level, but he had even had multiple wives in Ziglag, and who knows how it all worked, and even with the concubines back then as well. He didn't respect the commandment to not multiply wives, but it always, always goes further back. It's a sin of the heart, and it starts in the secret place. So pulling this into today, all sin starts small, right? And it builds and builds until it manifests itself in public. It's the nature of every sin secret. It finds you out. In fact, it all starts as a lie that's believed from darkness. Once the lie is believed and action is taken, it turns into sin. In David's case, it's literal. He takes Michael, Hinoam, and takes Abigail to be his wife. And the list continues. What about today? Polygamy's quite rare unless you're a Mormon or a Muslim. But if a person marries their wife but has an emotional affair with a coworker or watch pornography on TV now it's getting personal isn't it that's figuratively three wives a wife a coworker and a sexual relationship with someone on TV God doesn't want us to have other intimate relationships in fact our relationship with our spouse is supposed to be a reflection of our relationship with God I have a friend who was an executive at a large corporation, and he had an affair with the coworker, and he can describe in detail his restoration with his wife and his family, but in the process he actually goes into detail of how he started with pornography which blinded him. Then he fell into an emotional affair with the coworker, which turned into a full blown physical relationship. All sin starts small and begins as a lie. It starts in the heart and in the secret private moments, until it peaks with obsessions with pornography. And if this is the first step in adultery, pornography is important to talk about. David, in his relationship with God, couldn't hide from his sin or lust. Either he changed, or truly repented, or it would manifest in extreme ways, which it did. There was so much for and so much against David. When he was on, he was incredibly on. When he was off, it was disastrous. So much so he lost grip with reality, mentally, emotionally, physically, and especially spiritually. So taking this application to our society today, according to some recent research by the Barna Group, two-thirds of men view pornography monthly. So this is the first step in the open door for sexual sins. Wayward eyes will find a target. But the study goes further and states 10 to 15% were addicted to pornography. And this is the ones that actually confess that. How about this for a heavy message, huh? So, if a person has open doors of lust in their lives, they are more prone to lusting after co workers and committing emotional affairs and eventually cheating on their spouses. It's so sad when you hear about someone having a divorce after 10, 20, or 40 years of marriage. And it's really sad that the divorce rate in America is over 50%, for the access to secret sin is so available it opens doors to greater sin. This is why it's so important to close the doors to sin as quickly as possible in our lives. So I've been chewing on this. How could something so destructive, like pornography, be easily and readily available? It amazes me how every day, When a man wakes up in the morning, he gets to make a decision of life with God or death by sin. The tree of purity, or the tree of lust, yuck. The simplicity of the garden, enjoy the riches of the garden, or die by eating the fruit of knowledge of evil, a man's choice every day. This is the thing about sin, it blinds us. It said of Apostle Paul that something like scales came off his eyes. His rage and hatred blinded him to hate, so much so that he persecuted the believers of God. Similarly, sin, especially lust, deadens the mind, which has been scientifically proven. It is with the eyes that one commits the sin of lust, which corrodes the mind and deadens the heart to God. Sin starts small until it grows into a blinding force that could eventually require significant deliverance. For 1 John 2.16 states, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So back to that thought, how could something so destructive like pornography be so easily and readily available? And this came to me. If we cannot control ourselves and master our physical bodies and emotions and sexual desires, how can we be trusted with heavenly things? If we cannot be trusted with our own bodies and to keep them pure, how can we be trusted with the holiness and revelation and treasures of heaven? Heavenly secrets would be like throwing pearls to pigs. And this is where we invite action, if we haven't already and welcome repentance and introduce redemption to those who have fallen into lust. Where are you at? If you are in a decision-making process and you are tempted, choose light, not darkness. You know what's right. If you are dappling in sin and it doesn't have a grip on you, walk away as far and quick as you can. Joseph was approached by Potiphar's wife, and it said he ran. You run from sin and temptation and cry out to God and He will deliver you. Run like Joseph did. If you are deeper and in a darker place than you'd ever imagine, and lust has a grip on you, and you have lost control and find there's no way out, that's okay. Just cry out to God, because you are way beyond your strength. For Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee and delivered the man at the Gadarenes from over 7,000 demons. God would love to hear from you, and His grace will save you. If you earnestly want free, run to Him, get on your knees, give yourself over to God and cry out for His deliverance, and He will deliver you. And to the fathers and mothers out there, I ask you to fight like Moses did when Israel fought the Amalekites. Your sons and daughters are up against challenges you never had as a child, but they are Joshua's and Caleb's and they will be giant killers. Stand strong, hold up your staff up on the hilltop, and pray a strong covering of God's grace over them, to not only fight darkness, but to push it back in this age. And when you get tired, ask for your friends like Aaron and Hur to hold up your hands, and they will be victorious. Whatever you give to the Lord will be a success. So clearly, this is a fear of the Lord type message. But there's always hope, and the rewards always outweigh the challenges and sacrifices. So to wrap up this program, we have to have a teaser to those who persevere and those who say no to lust. Make no mistake about it. The reward is eternity and perfection in Jesus. It's wrapped up in one verse on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The pure in heart are those who choose God and His freedom, and are washed in His blood. The pure in heart are those who run back to Him if they slip. The pure in heart are those who are committed to Jesus. The pure in heart are those who dedicate their lives to Jesus Christ, and their reward is they get to see God. The pure in heart will see God. Yes they will see Him in heaven one day, but they will get to see Him on earth through answered prayer. Manifestations of his spirit, abundant Christian fruit, dreams fulfilled, lives transforms, and power encounters with the living God. The reward is heaven at the end of our lives, and the end of the age, but the reward is also heaven on earth. For those who choose a life of purity, they will see God not only in the age to come, but in this life for it was the Lord who told us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew six nine The Lord's Prayer. This then is how you should pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us of our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Message to Kings. Stay tuned next week as we discuss what happens next with David and how God confronts David. Feel free to visit the website, messagetokings.com. And if you want to chat, email us at messagetokings@gmail.com. at gmail.com.